Well, well, well. Turns out that one of the most obvious assumptions in the entertainment industry is actually true. The scores on Rotten Tomatoes are completely inaccurate, easily manipulated, and in some cases it appears as though some so-called critics have been paid to give some movies a positive review so that their tomato meter score can go up. Because, as we're all aware by now, the Rotten Tomatoes score has become the make it or break it signifier for your average moviegoer as it's grown to dominate the conversation regarding the quality of movies over the past 20 years or so. And that's resulted in studios and marketing firms going to great, seemingly unethical lengths in order to push their films over the edge. Reality truly can be whatever I say. Yeah, so a recent article in Vulture goes over a lot of the reasons why Rotten Tomatoes is an untrustworthy source when it comes to deciding whether or not to see a movie. Some of their analysis includes already widely known critiques of the service, like the fact that the site is partially owned by two of the biggest studios, Warner Brothers and Universal Pictures, Universal being the parent company to Fandango, which became the majority owner back in 2016. At the time, it sounded alarm bells because it's a studio that owns a ticket-selling service that also owns a website which essentially tells consumers whether a film is worth seeing or not. Seems like a conflict of interest, but as we've seen with countless mergers and acquisitions over the years, nothing matters. As long as you have an absolute shitload of money, you can do whatever, whatever you want. Just yeah. do it. Who huh. cares? Should we look into this uh, acquisition? No, probably not, because nah. then nobody's going to make all that money. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's also the fact that in a lot of cases, the actual score doesn't have much to do with each critic's personal review of the film at all. Their review could be a one-paragraph blurb of random thoughts or an intricately detailed and deeply analyzed essay on the film. All that matters is whether or not the critic decides that their overall view is either positive or negative. There's no option for mid. Yeah. And a lot of reviews are pretty mid, but they have to pick one or the other, and uh, that can swing the scale quite a bit. So all of the critic reviews, regardless of length or content, are either assigned a positive or a negative. Then the tomato score is calculated by dividing the amount of positive reviews by the number of reviews in total. If 60% of the reviews are positive, it's fresh. Less than 60%, it's rotten. Years ago, the pool of film critics was also relatively small compared to the amount that contribute to the scores today, which is why you may have noticed after clicking through to read some of the critics' responses to a movie, they don't recognize a majority of the outlets that these people are writing for. Yeah, I'd say Rotten Tomatoes is like, it's useful if you know what it is or how it works. And that's always... A the, shred of media literacy, over, like with yeah. most things. Over the years, I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of complaints about Rotten Tomatoes that really aren't valid because they're just ignoring how it works. It's like the, the tomato score is a very just like quick, at a glance, general sense of sentiment. Mm -hmm. But if you want to use it properly, you're going to have to scroll a little farther and like see the reviews and see what jumps out and see who's saying what. And yeah, more and more... For the past like 10 years, it's gone from being all like syndicated columnists and professional critics to uh, kind of mostly just being like fucking YouTubers and bloggers and people whose opinion you can already tell just based off like the name of where they're writing it. It is like I love Marvel movies.com <laughs> said it's a great movie. It's like, yeah. OK, well, and, and it, it, honestly, the studios are guilty of a lot of this, too, outside of the potentially unethical stuff. But because they've given so much credibility to when a movie gets the coveted yeah. tomato that they put it in all of their marketing very prominently over everything else. So when it goes badly for them, 
they're really in no position to bitch about it. Yeah. It's also, I mean, uh, Rotten Tomatoes is reliable for general audience type movies, I'd say. Yeah. Like, if it's a Pixar movie, it's like, yeah, pretty much everyone's going to like that movie. Yeah. If it's something that's a little more, uh, you know, outside of the general audience's stuff, it's going to be divisive and it's going to have a lower score because of that. Yes. But Marvel you, movies, it still Pixar might movies, be amazing. Yeah. All the tentpole stuff is all literally produced in order to appease the widest possible yeah. audience. And so. some, of, some of the best art is necessarily going to alienate more people, especially the people who aren't into having to use their brains all that much. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's an imperfect system, but uh, we've known that. Yeah, but still, uh, a massive, massive amount of uh, critics on there. And that's because a few years back, Rotten Tomatoes flung open the doors and basically approved anyone with a blog, podcast, YouTube channel, or social media following to join the ranks of their official critics, bringing their scores and reviews into the final calculations. Now, this is a move done with good intentions, due to the glaring fact that an overwhelming majority of film critics contributing to the site were older white men, and you hopefully won't be surprised to learn that having a larger, more diverse pool of voices contributing to everything, but in this case, movie reviews, is a good thing, actually. The problem seems to be that the approval process and moderation were, were lacking or at some point just non-existent. And as proven by the Vulture article, it allowed the site to be manipulated by critics who, despite simply running a blog or podcast, pulled the exact same weight as a critic working for the New York Times, Washington Post, your local newspaper, whatever. Again, in theory, maybe this was a good idea, but in practice, it appears to have been abused or manipulated. Yeah, yeah, this was always going to happen. And uh, my, my idea, which is free, if you can make websites, go and do it. What I've always hoped someone would build is a site where you rate, like, you know, 50 fucking movies, and then they say, they show you, hey, your opinions generally line up with this critic and this critic, so you should probably see what else these specific critics, who seem to share your taste, what else they like. That's, years ago, I just started gravitating towards certain critics, and I was yeah. like, I, I generally in, uh, align with them, and I enjoy reading their stuff. That would be nice. But let's get into the, the bigger revelations from this article. And again, the full article is linked below in the description, and it's well worth the read. But it starts off by laying out a specific example of score manipulation. In 2018, a movie publicity company called Bunker 15 took on a new project, Ophelia, a feminist retelling of Hamlet starring Daisy Ridley. Critics who had seen early screenings had published 13 reviews, seven of them negative, which translated to a score of 46% on the all-important aggregation site Rotten Tomatoes, a disappointing outcome for a film with prestige aspirations and no domestic distributor. But just because the tomato meter says the title is rotten, scoring below 60%, it doesn't need to stay that way. Bunker 15 went to work. While most film PR companies aim to get the attention of critics from top publications, Bunker 15 takes a more bottom-up approach, recruiting obscure, often self-published critics who are nevertheless part of the pool tracked by Rotten Tomatoes. In another break from standard practice, several critics say, Bunker 15 pays them $50 or more for each review. What? Wow, $50. Oh, interesting. Hey, we were hoping you could review this. Obviously, you know, just say how you feel. But if but you feel really good. But here's $50, and 
you know, we got a lot of movies in the pipeline, so... That's yeah. a lot of $50. Do what you will. Yeah. Do what you will. In October of that year, an employee of the company emailed a prospective reviewer about Ophelia. It's a Sundance film, and the feeling is that it's been treated a bit harshly by some critics. I'm sure sky-high expectations were the culprit. So the teams involved feel like it would benefit from more input from different critics. More input from different critics is not very subtle code, and the prospective critic wrote back to ask what would happen if he hated the film. The Bunker 15 employee replied that, of course, journalists are free to write whatever they like, but that super nice ones, and there are more critics like this than I expected, often agreed not to publish bad reviews on their usual websites, but to instead quarantine them on a smaller blog that Rotten Tomatoes never sees. I think it's a very cool thing to do. If done right, the trick would help ensure that Rotten Tomatoes logged <laughs> positive reviews, but not negative ones. That'd be so cool. <laughs> you know what would be so cool is if you hated this, you just threw it away. You just threw the review away. In a trash can called, I don't care. There's just so much negativity in the world, like... You know, like if it's a if you really like the movie, like it would be awesome to have it on your blog. But like if you hated it, maybe put it on like a haters only blog. Yeah. Wow. Between October 2018 and January 2019, Rotten Tomatoes added eight reviews to Ophelia's score. Seven were favorable, and most came from critics who have reviewed at least one other Bunker 15 movie. <laughs> the writer of a negative review says that Bunker 15 lobbied them to change it. If the critic wanted to give it a barely overall positive, then I do know the editors at Rotten Tomatoes and can get it switched. A Bunker 15 employee wrote, <laughs> Ophelia climbed the tomato meter to 62%, flipping it from rotten to fresh. The next month, the distributor IFC Films announced that it had acquired Ophelia for release in the U.S. Just diabolical. Hey, it worked. <laughs> you can't argue with the results. I, it worked, but nevertheless... No one's ever heard of this fucking movie. I yeah I, I mean I might have heard it when it, when it was nope. out, but no. Nope. In never, retrospect, never nothing. heard of it. Further down in their reporting, they add uh, that another problem and where the trickery often begins is that Rotten Tomatoes scores are posted after a movie receives only a handful of reviews, sometimes as few as five, even if those reviews may be an unrepresentative sample. But studios see it as a feature, since with a little elbow grease, they can sometimes fool people into believing a movie is better than it is. When a studio is prepping the release of a new title, it will screen the film for critics in advance. It's a film publicist's job to organize these screenings and invite the writers they think will respond most positively. Then that publicist will set the movie's review embargo in part so that its initial tomato meter score is as high as possible at the moment when it can have maximal benefits for word of mouth and early ticket sales. For example, in February, the tomato meter score for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania debuted at 79% based on its first batch of reviews. Days later, after more critics had weighed in, its rating sank into the 40s. In a statement, Rotten Tomatoes wrote, We take the integrity of our scores seriously and do not tolerate any attempts to manipulate them. We have a dedicated team who monitors our platforms regularly and thoroughly investigates and resolves any suspicious activity. They also pointed out, like, The Flash did this when they uh, were doing their big final marketing push where it was like, it had the Rotten Tomato score, and it just, and it said like very small under it as of this date. Mm -hmm. uh, probably because <laughs> they legally had to do that. Yeah, yeah, they'd be lying if they didn't do that. But but they told the truth by putting all that tiny text there. Yeah, now, and all of these reasons are why we've shifted the ways that we and we assume many others commit to seeing movies. Uh, Letterbox has been a, a helpful addition to the discourse. Very funny comments on there at the very least. You go to a movie and they you can do like the Reddit style ranking. 
Some people I, I can't it. get into it. There's there's some real freaks over on Letterboxd. Yeah, it's just like any social platform. Uh, but uh, it's always best, like uh, Elliot pointed out earlier, to simply follow the movie critics that you enjoy reading and tend to side with. Yeah, it's a little more work, but um, yeah. And, and at the very least, even if you don't always agree with them, a good critic actually does criticism. Mm-hmm. And uh, you might read a review that someone talks about why they didn't like the movie and say, hey, what they're describing sounds like something I would like. Yeah. Looking at a fucking number is not going to give you that. Now, if you've, if you've read a great review before or uh, even after you've seen a movie, that's where I typically find it. If I love a movie, I'll start looking up yeah. what other people have to say about it. And that's where I've found people that I enjoy reading. Uh, so just when you do that, follow that critic on social media so you can read their opinions about other things. As for the future of Rotten Tomatoes, the masses don't give a shit. They will never read this article. No. They will remain blissfully unaware. You've got too much slop to eat to yeah. take time reading this article. The tomato meter, it's going to be around for a while because lazy people simply want to know if other people liked something that they might be interested in seeing. The piggies want their slop. And they, they don't want to go see a movie that, oh, bad score. I don't want to be a bad person or have people think that I have bad opinions. Uh, for the studios, however, uh, they've already gone to depths that we couldn't have even anticipated because, as I'm sure you've seen previously uh, in recent years, they're just searching through social media for any positive review or reaction. Was it The Flash where they were, like, flashing, like, a million different... And uh, it was just twi- like, yeah, Twitter Yeah, just posts. random fucking people. Yeah, any big tentpole movie is like that now. They just find any tweet... And then they add that to the trailer. It's actually kind of insane to see a trailer for a huge tentpole movie with heaps of praise all over the screen. And then it's like attributed to Twitter handle Joker Harley 420. Gone are the days when a great film like uh, the uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, not this one, the previous one, the, uh, the one from the guy, uh, the Transformers guy. Yeah, Michael Bay. Gone are the days when the Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie could come out and uh, be positively positively reviewed by Ricky for the win of Machinima.com yeah. and and Warcraft, packed full of fun. What, what was your what was your review? It was uh, I don't know. So I can't remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one, but it was good, on the clean ad. Fun, yeah, yeah. It was on the ad, and then the Warcraft one is still on to this day. The DVD Blu-ray That's box. So fucking funny. But at least I worked for an outlet, and it's like they were like. I seriously doing the same thing, like looking for good reviews. Well, yeah, they're like, hey, so send this us guy your, loves send, Warcraft. Yeah, send us your. Uh, it's like rea- there's a word I can't remember, but it's, send us your reaction. You send them a paragraph, and they pull out one word. Like, like we use that. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's how it works behind the scenes, folks. They sent the email like, "What do you think of a Warcraft movie?" I thought it was amazing. Visually, a masterpiece. Can we well, say that? A lot sure. of other people didn't. But. Uh, <laughs> Let's move over to a story that's way more concerning. Elliot, why don't you take it? So, uh, yeah. We Just because ta- I love hearing you say the man's name. We talked a lot about this person in a previous episode this week, mm-hmm. but there's more. It would appear as though Elon Musk may have meddled in a geopolitical conflict by intentionally shutting off internet access to Ukraine right before they were about to launch an attack on Russian ships. Hmm. And we saw this a little bit in that Ronan Farrow article in uh, The New Yorker a few weeks back, but it's now been 
uh, double confirmed, and there's some interesting theories behind it. And th this is also coming from his biographer, who yeah. is releasing that book soon. So this is a direct relationship with the man himself. So yeah, here's the Daily Beast with more on this. Elon Musk secretly ordered SpaceX engineers to switch off the Starlink satellite communications network near the coast of occupied Crimea in order to thwart a Ukrainian surprise attack on Russia's naval fleet, according to a report. The incident last year is reported in Walter Isaacson's upcoming biography of the billionaire titled Elon Musk. With the comms down, the Ukrainian submarine drones packed with explosives lost connectivity and washed ashore harmlessly, Isaacson writes, according to CNN. Musk was reportedly motivated to foil the attack out of concern that a strike on Crimea would constitute a mini Pearl Harbor and lead to Russia retaliating with nuclear weapons. D does he know what Pearl Harbor is? They were already at war, you fucking idiot. You can't do a Pearl Harbor in the middle of an ongoing war. Yeah. You fucking moron. But uh, yeah, if you look on uh, Twitter.com, the social media website, Twitter.com, all of the Musk fanboys are just like, Elon Musk saved the world? Elon Musk thwarted a potential nuclear holocaust? Wow. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Yeah, masterful gambit, sir. What's even more concerning, though, is the fact that he might have gotten the idea to turn off the Starlink ne network from none other than total loser and contributor to Russian state-backed news outlet Russia Today, Ian Miles Chong. Yeah, Malaysia's own uh, Ian Miles Chong. A person who I, I don't even think has ever set has, foot in the has, United States of America. Has never been to the United States. But, but has a lot of opinions on how everything here is run. And a, a shocking amount of influence. Yeah, a, a, a despite disturbing being, amount. Despite being just a pathetic, gross, stupid person. Mm-hmm. Musk and the unfortunate-looking Miles Chong <laughs> have had back-and-forth conversation on Musk's platform multiple times in the past, and in response to a tweet from late last year where Musk said, I've been up all night trying to think of any possible way to de-escalate this war. Which, by the way, in and of itself, yeah. is... Dude, come on! Don't bother me, I'm in here thinking of ways to stop this war. Yeah. Uh, in response to that, Chong wrote, Might be a good idea to take Starlink offline for the terminals used on the front lines, could encourage them to reconsider their position on advancing towards Crimea and leading the world further into the brink of total war. Hmm, yeah, so d definitely just a coincidence. Ian Miles Chong just standing above the globe, yeah. the puppet master of geopolitics. Yeah. Uh, does the Malaysian like government even know about this guy? Do they know what they've got on their hands here? Do they know? The most influential man? Do they know? On Earth? Yeah. Also, the Ian Miles Chong's like fucking CIA files got to be. Some, yeah. some unfortunate analyst at Langley, Virginia has been just like compiling. All right. Like, okay, you're, and you're telling me this man, he's the one whose idea it was? This, he's pulling okay. the strings? Okay, fine. But yeah, it, look, coincidence, sure. But it wouldn't be the first time that Elon has taken advice from random people on Twitter. And CNN adds more to their story, or more to the story in their reporting, and includes a SpaceX ex executive becoming very very upset with Mr. Musk, whose decisions seem to come from Twitter and would end up costing the company tens of millions of dollars, saying the following. 
The uncharted territory that Ukrainian and U.S. officials were in, relying on the charity of an unpredictable billionaire for battlefield communications, also led to a standoff over who would pay for the Starlink terminals last fall. SpaceX had spent tens of millions of its own money sending the satellite equipment to Ukraine, according to Musk. And the company told the Pentagon that they wouldn't continue to foot the bill for the satellite gear, as CNN first reported last October. After CNN's reporting, Musk reversed course, tweeting, The hell with it. We'll just keep funding Ukraine government for free. Gwynne Shotwell, Musk's president at SpaceX, was livid at Musk's reversal, according to Isaacson. The Pentagon had a $145 million check ready to hand to me, literally, Isaacson quotes Shotwell as saying. Then Elon succumbed to the bullshit on Twitter and to the haters at the Pentagon who leaked the story. Okay, so yeah, all in all seems like, you know, the experiment of providing funding and complete trust to private companies deployment and management of technology, space travel, and more during a time of war, it might not be a good idea. Yeah. Hmm. It's concerning. Especially if the guy in charge of that company is a petty man-child who spends most of his time shitposting and taking advice from people who may have ulterior motives, or at the very least, just be dumb as shit. Yeah. Anyways, we, uh, we have more news and updates for you in just a second, but first, let's thank today's sponsor, Factor. Let them cook. We're talking about the cooks at Factor. With the busy fall season, just, well, it's it's coming, baby. It's it's here. Temperature outside was actually pretty good this year. Yeah, this I, hear, I hear they're even starting to sell the pumpkin spice products. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, uh, with all of that happening, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, you'll eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Too busy with your end-of-summer goals to cook, but you want to make sure you're eating well? With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Last night I had, uh, it was like chicken and spinach artichoke dip. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy, then get back to crushing your goals. Refresh your healthy habits without missing a beat. Choose from 34-plus weekly flavor-packed, dietitian-approved meals ready to eat in two minutes. Level up with Gourmet Plus options prepared to perfection by chefs and ready to eat in record time. Treat yourself to upscale meals with premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter, and asparagus. Looking for calorie-conscious options ahead of the busy season? We'll try delicious, dietitian-approved, calorie-smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. With Factor, you can rest assured you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. This September, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered right to your door. Ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com newsdump50 and use our code newsdump50 to get 50% off. That is code newsdump50 at factormeals.com slash newsdump50 to get 50% off. Back to the news now, and uh, it's not like we had any kind of respect for Tucker Carlson before he was fired from Fox News and sent to the bowels of twitter.com, sorry, x.com mm -hmm. for his exclusive news show. But his latest episode shows just how far he's fallen in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the viewership is still awful, inconsistent, and unreliable, but the topics that he's choosing to cover... They're now just completely unhinged conspiratorial bullshit that you would even be surprised to see across the front page of 
supermarket gossip magazine. Yeah, it's it's gnarly. The guy's running for president and credible information comes out that he's smoking crack and having sex with dudes. That seems like a story. Well, it would be a story if the media really cared about telling people the truth. Uh, case in point, on his most recent exclusive Twitter show, Tucker Carlson spent the episode perpetuating a completely unsubstantiated rumor that former President Barack Obama is gay, actually. Wow. Not even big if true. Not even a big deal. Yeah. But uh, still. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a virulent homophobe, I will never vote for this man to be president <laughs> again. Oh, what's that? He can't run again? Okay, then who the fuck cares? Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. But also, the person that he's giving the megaphone to isn't even a reliable witness at all. They're, he's straight up lying. Yeah. Usually, Tucker's just asking questions style of presentation at least has something to do with current events or his opinion on political decision making. This is literally just gossip and rumors that he's leaning into in order to get his name back in headlines. And it's not even new goss. It's actually old fucking gossip. No, yeah. It's, uh, it's, very, it's a very strange thing to focus on for Tucker Carlson, who has, uh, you know, no restrictions anymore, and this is what he chooses to cover. Yeah, like... It, Very telling. I mean, it would be more fresh if he was talking about, like, Benghazi. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> uh, here's the story, but first we should point out that, uh, before we even get into it, because this, this pops up in the story, but, like, let's just get out in front of it. Tucker is basing the facts in this interview on a lie detector test that his guest took, despite the fact that that guest, Larry Sinclair failed that lie detector test. But he took it. And that's a truth. Tucker conveniently left that part it's out. a truthful though. thing to do, uh -huh. to take the test. Tucker himself sums up the story by saying, Larry Sinclair says he had a night of crack cocaine-fueled sex with Barack Obama, and that Obama came back for more the next day. Damn. If Damn, it Barry. <laughs> yeah, he loved it so much, he came back for seconds. <laughs> Look, if it wasn't so sad and pathetic, it would be funny to laugh at how far Tucker has fallen. And yeah, no, it's actually okay to laugh at him too. But there are plenty of total weirdos on Twitter who are eating this shit up and taking it as absolute fact. It's not just the failed lie detector test, though. Here's the telegraph with more. The bigger problem is the reliability of Mr. Sinclair, a man with a rap sheet so long that Dickens could string a novel out of it. Politico, the one outlet that reported in any depth on him when he first went public in 2008, noted that old Larry aliases include Lair Vizcara Avila and Mohammed Gahanan had racked up multiple arrests and convictions, including for fraud. He served a long stint in jail, during which he behaved so badly that he had to be disciplined 97 times. Uh, it continues and it references the polygraph test. Here's how Tucker described his star witness in a separate interview dated August 30th. Larry Sinclair has been in and out of prison. He's got a criminal record. He's poor. He's got a disordered life. I think he has a record of deception. Obviously he does. But for all that, this story is clearly true. <laughs> After all, Sinclair did say, I'll sign an affidavit, and he did. I'll take a lie detector, and he did. But if Carlson is referring to the polygraph Sinclair took in 2008, uh, he failed that test and claimed that Obama's advisor, David Axelrod, paid $750,000 to fix the result. In conspiracy theory land, everything is proof of the plot, even its debunking. It's a short skip from sex to death, and by the end of the Tucker-Sinclair interview, we had heard that the choir master at Obama's Chicago church knew about all the gay sex, and by unbelievable coincidence, was murdered in 2007. Wow. 
So yeah, just absolutely. It's insane. It's unhinged stuff. Absolutely really no bearing on current events or politics other than to drum up more anger and hatred towards Democrats and by extension LGBTQ folks. They're doing fucking conservative mad libs. Like who do we, who do they really, oh, Obama. And gays. Mm, yeah, let's go. Here we go. Here's one. Gay Obama. And what would it, hold on, but they love, everyone loves cocaine, but they hate crack because they're racist. So yeah, Tucker not doing so great, coming off a little bit sad, a little bit desperate, and we love to see it. And those pathetic numbers are very telling too. Not that stupid Trump one that was inflated to hell and back. He's got to be so upset with Elon Musk for ruining his life. <laughs> now it's tw uh, Tucker on X. He had to make a whole new logo like like two weeks into his show. He's like, I, I guess it's Tucker on X now. I, it just looks like a fucking porn show now. The eventual lawsuit between Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk for uh, lack of any payment is going to be beautiful to read. Yeah. yeah. Because I, it hasn't been handled yet legally with Fox News, but he seemingly is handing over his yeah, you know, he guaranteed 20-something million dollars. He gave up a very large severance that would have required him to simply shut the fuck up for like two years, which like, you know, obviously when you're famous, the time is money and the longer you're away, but like, he's he's rich enough. He, he, he lives up in Maine. He could have just chopped wood for two years, lived a, now it's his best life. He gave that up to come on Twitter under the pretense that this was going to be very lucrative you know a big deal and it it has flopped yeah and who knows how the payments are going on behind the scenes i can't well, there's no money the adl took all of my money that's right tucker go after the adl because the, they're taking they're go the, ones ask taking the jews the jews took my money that they're the ones taking it from you tucker uh so yeah very that'll be all very interesting to see how it plays out but um anyway speaking of sad situations E3 has been killed once again. How is this even possible? Stop. He's already dead. It's a, it's a, it's a veritable zombie, this E3. It's over, folks, though. Uh, put a fork in it. It's done. After years of failed attempts to bring the convention into the modern age, maybe turn it into something more than just a room filled with electronic billboards, and also, you know, convince the game companies to keep using their event as an exclusive location to market and hype their upcoming slate, E3 has failed and it looks like it's never, ever coming back. Here's The Verge with more on what might have been E3's last chance at cultural relevance fading away. Plans for E3 2024 have already been in doubt, but now a report from gamesindustry.biz reveals that the ESA, the trade association behind the event, has dumped its organizer. The ESA has confirmed to The Verge that it no longer plans to partner with PAX organizer ReadPop for future E3 events. While the ESA was supposed to work with ReadPop for E3 this year, things started to fall apart when companies like Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo dropped out of the show. Now, GamesIndustry.biz reports that the ESA and ReadPop have made the mutual decision to exit the multi-year deal. Although a June report from the Los Angeles City Tourism Commission revealed that the city doesn't expect E3 to return to its convention center in 2024 or 2025, GamesIndustry.biz says that the ESA doesn't have plans to cancel it just yet. Oh, you're mm. saying there's a chance. We're going to kill this thing again. It reportedly informed the Los Angeles Convention Center that it won't hold E3 there next year, which means it could still take place elsewhere. Anywhere. Anywhere you want. E3's wherever you want to be, baby. In, in your dreams. Yeah. Additionally, GamesIndustry.biz adds that the ESA is planning a complete reinvention of E3 in 2025. This is the same shit they've said every year since 
COVID is basically what Let killed this. Let it die in peace. Although, like, you can't you can't even blame COVID for this because E3, it was already on the E3 decline. was already like even going up like the year like 2019. All the major uh, publishers had their own events outside of the LA Convention Center. Just like Comic Con, all of the big studios are just like, oh, we can just produce all this stuff yeah. ourselves. And they couldn't even pivot to, um, you know, more indie stuff because PAX already has that shit on lock. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was redundant. And, and they, yeah, they, they opened it up to the general public, but <laughs> yeah. there's nothing for the general public to do. Yeah, okay. You show up at 8 a.m. and maybe... You look at some cosplay? Stand in, like, two or three lines to play five minutes of gameplay. It, E3 kind of sucks. Yeah. It's a trade convention. That's what it started as, just a way for like yeah. retailers to be like, what's coming out this year? Yeah. How much how many copies of these games should we like order for my regional GameStop that I own? It's not it's it was never for you. That it's such an antiquated idea. Anyway, E3's never coming back. Kiss it goodbye. Yeah. Or at least there's no way it ever goes back to what it was. If anything, it'll be a tiny shell of itself. Just using the name. Maybe yeah. resemble like a regional PAX event where it's just like a mall for gamers to shop in with Events related to gaming happening throughout. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not what E3 was. But unfortunately, what E3 was has absolutely no relevance in today's gaming landscape. Developers and publishers can market directly to the consumer with none of the restrictions, cost, production, or specific timing that E3 demands. So while it might some time off in the future return as just a gaming event of some sort, the E3 that everyone knew has died. Again. For like... The fourth time? They keep dragging that body back out to beat it. Yeah, E3's died more times than uh, Michael Myers. That's right. But he keeps coming back. Yeah, with a vengeance. Uh, and then at the end of the video, which is right now, I just wanted to talk about my new favorite mascot, Boltman. <laughs> yeah. Boltman uh, has been around for a long time. I don't know he... how I never knew about Boltman until I started seeing memes of him. So the, the big resurgence in Boltman was that... it. <laughs> It's Boltman. Okay, there's a lot that goes into it. So the San Diego, or sorry, the Los Angeles Chargers are an NFL football team. They were the San Diego Chargers. Uh, so Boltman, what went viral like two weeks ago was Boltman staring, like paying his respects to a bust of Junior Seau. Who fucking like killed himself after like a, with CTE. Like it's a, it's a tragic yes, fucking a story. Yes, horrific event. And did it uh, in a way that his brain yeah. could be preserved shot it, and Intentionally researched. shot himself through the heart so that his brain could be uh, studied intact. It's and it's horrible. just Boltman staring at it, like, yeah. paying my respects. Yeah, and you see him from the back, and you're like, okay, that's a little weird. And then That's weird. And then people started posting online. Like, they're like, oh, by here. the way, this is what it looks like if Boltman is staring at you. And it is the most, yeah, it, like aggressive old white dude in a truck looking face that you've ever seen. It looks like if the movie The Mask had starred young Jack Nicholson <laughs> yeah. and the mask was yellow instead of uh, green. And that's not even the only Boltman face. Yeah, so that's, I think that is the current Boltman, but there has been at least three other Boltman over the past like 10 years. Like they changed Boltman every couple of years because they're like, people have gotten used to this Boltman, he's not scary anymore. Yeah. We need a new Boltman that's gonna There's, scare the shit out of people. There's some that look insane. Well, like, so originally it was like... A cloud, was, like a lightning bolt. It was a lightning, lightning bolt, bolt with arms and legs uh, looking like a... Yeah, real weird, uh, kind of dumpy. First one real gross, and then they, like, got a little bit better. But then they're like, wait, why can't it just be a tough dude in a football uniform but with a lightning bolt for a head? Yeah. And he's but, got he's got wraparound shades because uh, he loves the police. <laughs> 
So here's where it gets weird and dumb. Boltman, turns out, is just an unofficial mascot. Wait, what? Who attempted to make himself official. Wait, And really? when the Chargers moved from San Diego to Los Angeles, the guy, who I think is like a dentist or a real estate guy. What the fuck? Who had played Boltman for all these years. What? Sold the costume, and by selling the costume, he also wrote in the eBay listing that he sells the the, the like worldwide rights, the IP yeah, of Boltman. Wait, so do the Chargers even have an official mascot? I don't know, but it's like uh, you know how the Clippers had Clipper Daryl, who was just a guy, yeah, and was just like, yeah, I'm the guy that dances in the crowd. You know, huh. big deal. Interesting. Uh, the okay. Chargers, I don't know if they have anything, but Boltman was a full elaborate costumed mascot that was clearly at some points on the field representing the team. But also just wow. very funny that uh, being framed as just like I don't know, maybe maybe someone like a Gen Z person is in charge now and was like, you know, I can really get a conversation going here yeah. by posing in front of the Junior Seau bust. Just paying my respects. <laughs> so yeah, now that obviously has turned into Boltman standing in front of like anytime someone dies, it's it's, it's Boltman paying his respects, and, and then immediately someone posts the fucking face of him. Yeah, I was looking at like Google image results for Boltman last night, just laughing. If just we had the budget, with laughter. if we had the uh, the the. Uh, 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 last week tonight with John Oliver budget, this show would end with me being like, and we spent the fifty thousand yeah, dollars on Boltman. We we don't have that budget. Though. No, no, but I you know, and I don't and even can, like the you Chargers. You change that by uh, subscribing and uh, joining as a member. If someone's uh, if someone out chat. there has a dad who owns a dealership and wants to buy the Boltman costume, yeah, I will wear it to a Chargers game. Where do they even play? At the SoFi Stadium. Oh, they share they the just stadium have, with the Rams? Yeah, they just have uh, an alternating schedule. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh, if you love Boltman, make sure you like this video. If you hate Boltman, make sure you like it twice as hard. Like the video either way. It's the only way this channel grows. Uh, make sure you're subscribed. And if you missed it, we got a bad man up to no good. Elon <laughs> Musk. <laughs> video full of Elon Musk and uh, uh, another video about Burning Man from earlier in the week. Yeah. Check those videos out. We'll be back with some weekly weird news for you in just a little bit. Bye-bye.